The following episode contains several depictions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. I remember one day um, I had lost my job and I really needed to make some money and I wasn't about that life of like going out to meet Johns, like that just wasn't me. And I answered an ad in the back of the paper and it was for dancers and I really couldn't dance, but I was like, well, you know, we'll make it work, right? (laughs) And it turned out that he was really looking for like prostitutes, you know, to do house parties and hotel parties. And so I ended up um, saying that I couldn't do it. Like, I was like, no, it's not going to work. And he kept, like, coming back at me, like, trying to reach me, contacting me. And eventually I got down to where I had $8 one day. And I so happened to call my parents' house from a payphone because I didn't even have a phone. I called my parents' house and my stepbrother was like, some guy just called for you. He left a number. And so I called the guy back and he was like, well, you don't have to be broke tonight. And I was like, okay. Welcome to Screwed Up Moments, the podcast where it's okay to fail and it's okay to try again. I'm your host, Danny. Whenever I get asked about the Screwed Up Moments podcast, one question that always comes up is how I personally deal with the stories. Like what happens after listening and interviewing to a bunch of people who share the most tragic and life-changing events that happen in their lives. And I can tell you frankly, it is somewhat challenging to listen and edit through these difficult stories for hours on end. I mean, if you have just an ounce of compassion in you, you can easily imagine why. Nonetheless, these stories are not screwed up in a vacuum. And believe it or not, it is not just an endless repetition of tragedy and misfortune for the sake of it. More often than not, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, or at least the guests are steadily working towards it, which adds an admittedly unexpected dimension to the whole podcast. Producing Screwed Up Moments has personally given me perspective on the varying circumstances and misfortunes that people can find themselves in, but I would like to think that it has also given me a shred of hope. Hope that despite the difficulties that these guests face, or the innumerable failures or stumbling blocks that they encounter, they somehow, somehow always manage to find it in themselves to stand up again and carry on. Call it the benefit of a support network, the grittiness of the human spirit, or simply the will to survive, it is absolutely fascinating to listen to, if not truly inspirational. With that being said, today's guest, I would like to think, pushes the boundaries of this podcast, both in terms of the difficulties that she has faced, as well as how she came out of it. And without further ado, here is the story of Melanie Hill. Hi, this is Melanie Hill, and this is my screwed up moment. My name is Melanie Hill, and I'm the founder of Stronger Than My Struggles and the Crazy Like a Fox Tour, which is the first black mental health awareness tour. 
I'm a safe space curator, an eight-time author. I'm actually an award-winning author. And it's funny because I tell you all these titles, but a few years ago, that wasn't my life. The only thing people knew about me was that I was a very popular online cam girl. Um, I was a model. I was a entertainer on the cover of books and magazines. And I had three million views on one of the top-rated porn sites. I have a twisted history. I actually have a screwed up history. I wouldn't call it dark, but it definitely screwed up. And it's weird because I've learned to see the beauty in it and that everything that happened was meant for me because I wouldn't be stronger than my struggles. And that is my life now. So I come from a background where I was actually a keep a man baby. Okay. So I have a brother that's three months older than me. Just three months, which means that my mother knew that my father had another baby on the way, and she thought that I would keep him. And because I didn't um, accomplish that goal of making the man stay, I was always kind of like thrown to the wind. I was really abused in my home growing up. My mother didn't really want me. She wanted my father. It must have been uh, difficult to reconcile. When did you first have that realization? When I was about 14, you know. And it was because my father didn't come around much, like, and I thought he didn't want me because of the things that she would say. But she really made it hell for him to come around. She wanted him. She didn't want me. And so she allowed a lot of things to happen to me. Like, by the time I was two and a half, she was letting me be abused by her fiancé, who she ended up marrying when I was four. And he was very, very abusive to the point where I watched my mother get beat for saying hi to the mailman. Um, we weren't allowed to eat meat. And if she fed me meat, he'd beat her. Um, she had to call him at work and ask for permission to leave the house. And so that lifestyle, um, where I grew up watching that kind of violence and being put in a corner or punished all the time at the age of five and six, it was constantly trying to figure out, like, okay, so we grew up hearing fairy tales, right? And we read Cinderella. We heard the story. It was like being a real life Cinderella. Like, you have to understand, I was the only child. I, and my mother ended up having a third child. And I was the only child in the house that was abused from childhood. Like, she loved her other children. She nurtured her other children. When she let this man beat me, and then by the age of eight, let her best friend start molesting me to the point where... Um, she stood in court against me and told the judge I was a liar and he would never do that to me. How, how did you feel about that uh, experience? I mean, you must have built some resentment over that, right? I, I hated my mother. Um, I hated the adults around me because everyone was watching what I thought the abuse, but they couldn't see it or they say they didn't see it. But I hated everyone around me, and I always would um, escape into books and writing and try to find, like, a different world where I could be safe. But by the time I was 14, my mother was diagnosed with HIV, and she actually um, had pneumonia when I was 17 and went into the hospital, and she was on her deathbed, and she called me. She called me at, like, 3 o'clock in the morning one day, and she tried to apologize to me, and she wanted forgiveness. I didn't give it to her. And they um they put a tube down her throat the next day, so she never talked to anyone again. Like I was the last person she asked for forgiveness. And I still, twenty some years later, don't feel bad that I let her go to hell without it. 
I remember her telling me she loved me, and I laughed. <laughs> no, and it's so weird because I couldn't tell her that I loved her. Like, I had the kind of mother where if I tried to get affection from her and say something like, I love you, and she'd be like, no, you don't. You don't love me. Um, I called my mother woman for the last year of her life. I couldn't call her mom. Like, she didn't deserve that title. And so for her to um, call me in the middle of the night and tell me that um, that she didn't mean it, when it had been 17 years of abuse. Right. It just, her feelings were irrelevant, even if she was dying. Right, right, right. How do you think about um, comparing your own family situation to that of maybe you see on TV or those of your friends? Well, I used to hate that I wasn't a Huxtable. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I hated that I wasn't a Huxtable. I mean, now, knowing who Dr. Huxtable was, I'm glad I wasn't a Huxtable. I had enough going on. Um, but I used to hate that I wasn't a Huxtable. And that has been really um, a part of my screwed up grow, uh, following as I grew up, that I was constantly seeking that lifestyle. I was constantly looking for that stability, that person to love me, that people to adopt me into their family, that that group that was going to make me feel like I was okay. And so I really always looked for um, someone else to integrate with where I felt safe and I felt like this is what family does or people who care about each other does. And again, that's a part of why I started stronger in my struggles because as a, a person who had no one, I needed a community. And sometimes you have to create that community yourself. I just, I need sometimes to not be alone. I'd like to go back now. So we've talked about your mom and your relationship with your mom, right? And how that concluded, right? I want to talk about the relationship you had with your stepdad. So you mentioned that, um, you know, when you were young, you were always abused. What were your uh, earliest memories? Was it always this? Well, you know, I really don't have many many memories of him except for the abuse. Um, The whole time that I remember, he was like the demon in a closet, you know, like, I don't remember anything good about him. And it's weird because in some ways, uh, people to say I should be grateful to him because he was a provider. So even though he beat and tortured my family, um, he left a lot of money, you know, and my mother never had to work again. And there was inheritance for me when I turned 18. So even though he was a monster and I only had to suffer under him for a few years, I should be grateful. It's a twisted sense of morality. Huh. Well, that's what some people say. Oh, what do you think about that? People can go to hell. <laughs> yeah, so earlier you talked about um, how you didn't forgive your mother. I would imagine you didn't forgive your, your stepdad as well. No. Yeah, so people talk about the theme of forgiveness, right? And mm-hmm. you don't think it applies in this case? No. Forgiveness is, is for yourself, and I believe that. But also knowing that you can get over something without having to forgive. Like, you can heal without having to forgive someone. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't have to to say that what was done to you was acceptable for you to get past and they get a pass. Mm. 
it happened and it's now a part of my story and I can face that reality and I can live in this reality, but I don't have to forgive you for what you did. I just have to be strong enough to accept that this is my reality and to live in it. For most of us, I hope, it can be difficult to relate to Melanie's story purely because of just how screwed up it really was. She was born into unfortunate circumstances, being a keep-a-man-baby. As a result, she was never really treated like one of her mother's children, was often abused in her own home, and was neglected of any love and care. As you can imagine, these conditions for development are far from ideal. And yet, aside from the abuse, the neglect, or the dysfunctional family, there was one specific incident that was arguably worse than any of the above. An incident that would haunt Melanie for decades to come. It was a very, um, not only traumatic experience, but it was a turning point in my life. And I didn't realize it until much, much later. So um, when I was five, we lived in a house that was owned by my stepfather's family, and it was rat infested. And it got so bad that literally the, the rats had taken over the kitchen one day, and we couldn't go in the kitchen for like three days. It got so bad that my mother, because she, she had moved away from my stepfather. He had got an apartment up the street, and we were in the family house. Right. And it got so bad that she said, we can't stay in this house. We have to go up the street with your stepfather. And so we went to move into the apartment with him. And um, when we moved into the apartment with him, my cousin stayed in the house that we were in. She didn't mind the rats because she was on drugs back then and she was 17. So her and her boyfriend, who lived up the street, he was also 17, used to party in the house. And we were down the street in the apartment. That little boy... He was doing drugs in a family house, and my stepfather found out, and he confronted him about doing drugs in a family house. And later that night, he came down, and he kicked in the apartment door, and he stabbed my stepfather to death in front of all of us. And he was coming at my mother. I will never forget watching him, and my mother was screaming, screaming, and my stepfather fought this man naked to the death, down the hallway, out the steps. Like uh, He died on the steps because he still was not going to let that man hurt us in that house. Like, and even though he was our monster, he still died protecting us. But the little boy who murdered him, his brother was in my class. And probably about a month later, I had to start going back to school. And we had moved into my grandmother's house. And my mother made me start catching a bus to school by myself at the age of six after just witnessing a murder. And so I go to school one day, and the little boy who brother had stabbed my stepfather was in my class, and he kept saying to me, my brother in jail because of your family. He should have killed all of y'all. When he get out, he gonna kill the rest of y'all. Like, he kept telling me, that his brother was going to come back and finish the job. And I, I passed out, I think. I don't remember, but I think I passed out because I woke up on the floor. And the teacher was standing over top of me. And mind you, I'm six years old. And I kept telling her I didn't know what happened and I didn't, you know, I couldn't understand. And when it was time to go home, I couldn't remember what bus to get on or how to get home. And so I was standing outside my school 
And I remember one of my classmate mothers, she didn't have money to get on the bus with all of us. And she walked me home. It was like a half an hour walk. And when I got home, my mother beat me. And she said that I was lying. I, of course, I knew how to get home. Like, why would I make up that I don't know how to get on a bus? But that was my first blackout. And I wasn't diagnosed until I was 30 years old. So living for 24 years with my mental illness and not even understanding it after that was, like, so hard. But his murder really set off my mental illness. It was the moment when I split and I didn't even know. Because I have dissociative identity disorder. I'm a legal multiple, and I also suffer from um, anxiety disorder, PTSD, and depression. And so after that, my mother came into a windfall of insurance money and got strung out on crack. And this was the 80s. Right. So, you know, that was very common. And all the neighborhood kids called us, me and my sister, the poor little rich girls, because we had all the money, but our mother was a crackhead. On top of the abuse and the neglect, Melanie had actually witnessed the murder of her stepfather, which would induce a whole set of traumas and mental disorders as she grew older. At this point, she has already come across so many screwed up moments in her life that the term screwed up moment almost feels like an understatement. Because of all these difficult circumstances, Melanie realized quite early on that she couldn't depend on anyone but herself. And so, at the age of 15, her life would take another turn when she ventured out into the world and forged her own path. It started when I was 15, when my mother said, I'll buy you deodorant when your father pays child support. My mother's the reason I ended up in prostitution. She wouldn't take care of me. So it only progressed as I got older, and I had no one to take care of me. And I had to take care of myself. And so it was just a natural state to evolve as the world evolved and, like, the Internet came and you no longer had to go outside and meet guys. It's like, oh, I can meet money. I can make money from home, you know. So it just got easier and easier. But I really believe had my mother bought me deodorant when I was 15, I probably would have never ended up in the porn industry (laughs) (laughs) because I wouldn't have found out how at such a young age that men would give me money for the things I needed. say 15 on it never stopped it just was never a um, normal everyday thing it was I need to get by I need to eat I need food um, I need to buy feminine products so if a guy says hey I'll give you some money for this then I'll make it work I never went out and actively looked for like clients until it's about 24 and um, started doing like chat lines And that was such easy access to guys who were always offering me money for stupid stuff, you know. And it wasn't even like everyone wanted to have sex with you. Some guys really just wanted to be around a woman or to spend time with you or to take you out. And guys were into fetishes like feet and stuff. And so it was like, oh, you play with my feet and I can pay my rent. Sure. And so then I remember one day um, I had lost my job 
And I really, it was coming up on Christmas and I really needed to make some money and I wasn't about that life of like going out to meet Johns, like that just wasn't me. And I answered an ad in the back of the paper and it was for dancers and I really couldn't dance, but I was like, well, you know, we'll make it work, right? <laughs> and it turned out that he was really looking for like prostitutes, you know, to do house parties and hotel parties. And so I ended up um, saying that I couldn't do it. Like, I was like, no, it's not going to work. And he kept, like, coming back at me, like, trying to reach me, contacting me. And eventually I got down to where I had $8 one day. And I had to decide if I was going to buy a pack of cigarettes or if I was going to save that money so that I could go to social service on Monday and try to get some help. And I so happened to call my parents' house from a payphone because I didn't even have a phone. I called my parents' house and my stepbrother was like, some guy just called for you. He left a number. And so I called the guy back and he was like, well, you don't have to be broke tonight. And I was like, okay. So I went and did a party. And I ended up doing those parties for like six months. And after that, that's when I got my first uh, website. Somebody was like, I'll pay you to let me take pictures of you for a website. And I was like, okay. And so um, I did that. And eventually in 2006, the uh, June issue of Playboy came out. And maybe it was the May. It was even a May or June issue. And what it was, it was the ladies of MySpace. And Taylor Tequila and a few other women were on the cover. And for the first time, I said, what? I can put pictures on something? What is this MySpace thing? I thought that's what little girls got kidnapped. That's literally all I knew about MySpace at the time. I was like, little girls get kidnapped on there. But... I was like, I could put pictures on MySpace and end up in Playboy? Like, as a sex worker, like, that's a dream. Like, if I can get in Playboy, I can get the real money, right? So <laughs> I was like, oh, well, let me put pictures on MySpace. So the next day, I created a MySpace profile. And, like, literally within a week and a half, like, a photographer contacted me. and was like, you're so pretty, but you never smile. And I was like, I have a really screwed up smile, so I never let anyone see it. And he was like, I bet you I can make you smile if you step into my studio. And so I went. And he developed me as a model. And so the next thing you know, it was like by 2007, I was started to build like the online presence and things like that. By 2008, I was being booked to fly out to Vegas, all expense paid, to stay in a, a condo with Playboy photographers and penthouse uh, models. And I'm sitting here like, what? <laughs> You know, and I'm at the porn conventions and, and meeting celebrities, and I'm like, huh? But, I mean, when you look at it, it was career transition and growth. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, and so, you know, I was really proud of myself, and so I started to brand myself for real and to take it seriously. It was like, oh, well, I'm an entertainer. I'm not a whore. I'm an entertainer. Like, this whole online thing is a thing now. There are webcam girls and models and campsites. And, like, this is real. I want to dig a little deeper into that that earlier part. I'm just, I'm just trying to understand, during this period, your entire frame of mind was that this is just for survival. Yeah, and I wasn't even this me. See, I have dissociative identity disorder, so I live multiple lives in the same body. 
I have like really small pieces, like flashes of that time of my life. Like, and people who knew me back then, they look at me weird because apparently I was a heavy drinker. So they look at me weird. Like I'm a very social drink. I can have two drinks a month and I won't even finish the drinks. And so for a person who knew that I was a heavy drinker, they look at me like I'm crazy. But I'm saying, you don't understand that that was a whole different person. She lived in survival mode. Like, she numbed herself every day so that she could go out and have sex with strangers and let people touch her and degrade her and say things to her that triggered her. So in a sense, it's like your brain's way of of trying to cope with the whole craziness of the situation. That's exactly what the illness is. That's what dissociative identity is. Um, It's your mind, like, splits off to create um, another person in you that can handle what you can't. During that time when you first came on MySpace and everything, right, would it be fair to say that this is now a chance for you to develop a different side of you? Right. Right. Like, it's so weird because my first video um, as a cam girl was me sitting topless reading poetry. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Like, I'm going on a site where people are going to pay money for me and I'm sitting here topless like... And this and this and this and this and this. <laughs> do you, rem- and, do you uh, remember what the poem was? I don't remember. It was a sexual one. I remember that. Okay. <laughs> um, but no, I'm sitting here, you know, reading poetry. But they loved it. Right. And that's how I introduced myself to them. And that's the one thing that I always did. I never let them think that I was just this whore. Like, it was the first time that I got to control the narrative that whores can be intelligent. It was the first time that I got to show people that no matter what I did with my body, I had a mind. And so for me to be able to create that image of I'm this smart person, um, I have value, come to my website and see me do other things, it was really important for me. And it's something that I've been able to um, use as a springboard since. Even when I, I switched over out of the porn industry into where I am now with helping survivors, you wouldn't believe how many of my male fans are now still following my journey. Like, I don't have to be nude for them. I don't have to show off for them. I don't have to talk sex for them. They're proud of me. Hmm. They are supportive of me. I run strong into my struggles based off of the donations of one of my fans um, that started with me in 2009. And now he funds everything that we do. At this point, I just have to say that this has got to be one of the craziest redemption stories that I've ever come across. Just purely based on how screwed up Melanie's past was and the incredible journey that she has taken to build herself up to a point where she is now an advocate and supporter of other survivors who have been through similarly difficult circumstances. In a world that is often bleak and full of hardships and obstacles, her story is one that I like to think provides just a shred of hope. This is, of course, not to discount or trivialize her pains and struggles, but just to show that amidst all the failures and the misfortunes, you can find a little bit of light if you keep on persevering. Realistically speaking, some conditions will take a lifetime of adjustment, and some struggles will always be present no matter how far you've come. And even in Melanie's case, she would only come to terms with her lingering demons at the age of 30. If I read this correctly, you began therapy in 2009, mm-hmm. right? And then uh, you were di- diagnosed with PTSD, depression, anxiety disorder, and DID, mm-hmm. dissociative identity disorder. Yeah. 
Could you talk about the uh, experience of therapy? How, what made you go in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> so I had um, a little mini breakdown, and I got to the point where I became agoraphobic. I couldn't go out the house. Um, I wouldn't go out the house. I would go to the door, and I would want to just step out, and I would cry. Because it seemed like the world was so dangerous and I didn't know what was going on. Like it wasn't a normal thing with me. It could have even been one of my other personalities. I don't know. And I was at my boyfriend's house for like a week and he kept saying to me, like, I really love you, but something is wrong. Like you have to go see somebody. And at that time, the world did feel dangerous to me. I was still in the adult industry and guys would walk up to me on the street and say things to me and they would try to touch me. And then I got into a point where I used to have a knife. I used to walk around with it in my pocket. And the more they bothered me, it moved to my hip. And the more they bothered me, it moved to my hand. And eventually I was walking down the street with my knife extended, waiting to hurt the next person who came up to me, who touched me the wrong way, who said something to me. And that's what made me go in the house. And I walked into, um, I had my regular doctor's appointment one day, and I said to them, like, I really need to see a therapist. Can you tell me where to go? And they said, well, it's one down the hall. And so I walked in, and I said, I need to see somebody. I'm end up killing somebody. <laughs> Those were my words. Uh-huh. And so they scheduled me an appointment for the next day. I didn't really want to do therapy. I had always heard that it was, you know, unnecessary. And growing up in a black community, it was a thing you didn't do. You don't talk about what goes on in this house. And so, you know, I went in and I had this older white lady and I was like, mm, she is not going to give a fuck about, excuse my language, what I have to say. She's not going to care. She's not even going to be able to relate to me. And I was in so much pain that day. And she got down on the floor out of her chair and started showing me stretches on the floor. And I was so impressed that she actually cared about my pain that I was like, oh, maybe this is going to work. And so I continued to see her for eight and a half years. And I went in there, sometimes three days a week. And we worked through so much of my trauma. But she's another catalyst to traumatizing me. And she's a part of the reason why Stronger Than My Struggles exists. Because my best friend um, fell into a coma in 2016. And... At the beginning of 2017, he was still in that coma. And I walked into my therapist's office one day after eight and a half years, and she said, uh, I don't take your insurance anymore, and I'm not going to be able to see you today. Like, it was no cushion, no nothing. And I'm like, I just lost my best friend. You know, to me, he's lost. He's in a coma. Um, you're the only person I have, and you're literally just like... Yeah, like my insurance don't matter, so I can't come here. And um, I went home and I got in bed and I just, I stayed there for days. Yeah, I stayed there for days. So therapy was really good, but it also made me realize it wasn't enough. Because if therapy was contingent upon the person that you were talking to, um, only talking to you for money, then could you really feel safe? And so that's what made me realize that I really needed a community. I needed people who really cared. 
And again, that's a real part of why strong that my struggles exist because we, it's nice to have therapy and I'm going back, but therapy can't be where I get all my support or the only source of my strength because what happens when my therapist shuts the door on me, then I go home and wait to die. And I don't want to live like that. Could you talk about um, when you were diagnosed with all these different conditions? How did it make you feel? I can't remember. I was really deep into my psychosis back then. Um, my therapist, I remember as I started to heal, she would laugh and say, I remember when you used to come in here with them crazy wigs on. <laughs> and I'd be like, what? And she's like, girl, you used to come in here every week and your wig be sideways. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And she said, you remember the day you showed up with 14 pairs of shoes? I was like, what? <laughs> she <laughs> We always try to frame it in like, um, you know, you talk about the screwed up moments and then you talk about like the turning point, right? But it sounds like in your story, there are sort of many different redemptive moments, actually. Life is a roller coaster. Yeah. You know, I still haven't had what I think is my redemptive moment. Mm. I'm going into ministry. I don't know when, but I know that I am. I'm going to lead a non-denominational sect. And so maybe when I'm into my ministry, then I'll feel like I'm in my redemption because I really feel like it's my job to bring survivors back to peace when I brought more survivors home and understanding that it's a part of our journey because we have a mission on this earth. And it might not always look pretty, but if you just told me, just, you know, it's so weird because last night we recapped our decade in the writing workshop. And I told them in 2010, you know, I was a whore. But if you'd have told me that by 2020, I'd be fine flying first class and have multiple pairs of red bottoms and that I would have more money in the bank that I could ever think of and that my job would literally be to wake up and help people heal every day. I wouldn't have believed you, but God told me in 2013 that I was going to travel the world and heal people and tell my story. And I said, God, I'm a whore. Like, I had this whole conversation, like, how dare you? Like, what am I going to tell them? I'm going to tell them how you let this happen to me? I'm going to tell them how you let my mother do this, how you let me go through this? Like, what am I going to tell them? But now I have a story. I have a story of, but look where I am now. And look what's possible. And you can create this. Like, it's not like God came down here and did the work. Like, he did help in some places. But it was me creating this and manifesting this and and trusting that these things were for me and that I deserved them. Because you don't feel like you deserve when you've been victimized. And so making them understand that this was a part of your journey because you have a mission and it's bigger than you. So I I think once I start to bring more of them home, then I'll feel like I'm in my redemption. And so that brings the end to this episode of the Screwed Up Moments podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in and much, much thanks to Melanie Hill for sharing her amazing story. You know, just as a little postscript, I read up on Melanie's story before that interview. I attended her writing workshop. I've even listened to our recording probably a dozen times over at this point. And the thing is, I still get goosebumps every time I hear her tell her story. 
there was just so much in there, so much struggle and pain, but also at the same time, a lot of unexpectedly bright or even funny moments. It's like what Melanie says about how life is a roller coaster, or how I said in the beginning of this episode that these stories are not just screwed up moments in a vacuum. And to that, I can only add that it was truly a privilege getting to meet and interview Melanie. As she has mentioned, she does a lot of great work helping out survivors and creating communities such as Stronger Than My Struggles or the Crazy Like a Fox Tour. And if you're interested in checking out some of her stuff, I'll be posting links in the description. Do check them out. With that being said, the Screwed Up Moments podcast is brought to you by the Singaporean Social Enterprise Happiness Initiative, an organization that advocates for happiness and well-being through their message that happiness is a choice. Production and editing was done by me, Danny Cordy, on behalf of Fable Productions. Episode music was sourced from Blue Dot Sessions, and the theme song was composed by Rico Lowe. If you enjoyed listening to the Screwed Up Moments podcast, you can help out the show by sharing it amongst your friends or by subscribing and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Otherwise, if you have any questions, suggestions, feedback, or if you have your own Screwed Up Moments story to share, you can drop us a message through the email dkoordi at fableproductions.com or through the various social media links in the description. Once again, this has been your host Danny for the Screwed Up Moments podcast, reminding you that it is okay to fail and it is okay to try again. Thank you for listening.